A young couple spends the night out on the town together. They never return home. Did they run away together? Or is their disappearance more sinister than that? Four people disappear from the same area within a month. Are they connected? Or is it a coincidence? Five children disappear among the flames of a house fire. Did they die in the fire? Or is it more mysterious than that? Welcome back to Never To Be Seen Again. Hey everyone, welcome back to your favorite podcast, Never To Be Seen Again. As usual, or as normal, I am your host, Laura. Um, So... I hope that everyone enjoyed last week's episode in Iowa. Um, Those were some pretty interesting cases last week. If you haven't listened, I suggest that you go back and hear them. But I'm here to tell you that this week's cases are definitely going to top. I don't know what's, what's up with West Virginia, but like these cases are seriously mysterious and, um, unexplainable. I mean, I guess they could be explained if they were solved, but we're not there. That's why we're talking about them. Um, So let's get into the statistics. Uh, The population of West Virginia as of 2019 was reported as 1.792 million. That population is made of 50.5% females and 49.5% males. On the Charlie Project, there are 38 cases listed in West Virginia. 37 of those are males, which means 41 are females. The Doe Network only has 31 cases listed with only 15 males and 16 females. And NamUs has 133 cases with 84 males and 49 females. Now, I don't know what to think about those numbers because... If you look at NamUs, it seems like there are more missing men than women, but if you look at the Charlie Project or the Doe Network, there are more female cases. Um, so, I, I'm not sure, I'm not, and I've explained this before, NamUs usually has the most recent cases, so maybe there's been a spike in um, male cases in the recent years. Okay, um, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, in total, I'm going to tell you about eight missing people. Um, but I'm not going to tell you about eight, eight separate cases. In fact, over 60% of the missing people I'm going to tell you about are in just one case. Um, it's definitely going to be an interesting episode, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, it's probably not going to be as long as... Uh, most or the episodes have been recently Uh, so it should be pretty short hopefully if I can get through it but I'm going to give you the most information that I can because I really want you to hear about these mysterious uh, disappearances so let's just get into it so this week I'm not going to stay in chronological order I'm going to just um go around in time actually because I kind of want to go in an order of least to most mysterious. Um, 
so we're gonna start out in 1979 and I'm also gonna give you the description and the case numbers at the end of the stories this week as usual all the cases this week are on the Charlie project um, so you can go look them up on there if you really want to um, okay so let's go back to July 14th of 1979 on that evening, recently divorced 24-year-old Maisie Mae Sigmund Palmer decided to go out on a date. Maisie had been dating 18-year-old John Eric J. Farley for a few weeks. I think it was about six. Uh, they weren't going steady. They just dated occasionally, so it wasn't really serious. Um, Maisie had only been divorced for about three months, so I can't imagine, I can't imagine that she was ready for a serious relationship, and Jay was only 18, so I'm sure he wasn't ready to settle down either. So Maisie and Jay met at a nightclub in Charleston called the Roaring Twenties. That club no longer exists there now. Uh, they had fun for a while there, and then they decided to go somewhere else. Sometime after 11 p.m., they hitched a ride together to the King's Inn nightclub. When they get there, before they get out of the vehicle, Maisie says to Jay, uh, oh, he's in there. When she recognized, because she recognized a vehicle in the parking lot, and the person who drove them there had no idea who or what she was talking about. She, he, they just kind of overheard this as she was saying it to Jay. So Maisie and Jay get out of the vehicle and they head into the nightclub. So apparently whoever was there, um, she wasn't really scared of because they still went, went ahead into the club. So Maisie and Jay get a table on the ground floor with a friend because apparently this is more than one floor. They hang out there for a while and then Maisie gets up and says she is going up to the second floor to talk to someone. A few minutes later, Jay followed behind up to the second floor, I guess to go meet up with Maisie. I mean, that's what everyone assumes. So the rest of the night, no one sees Jay or Maisie. They don't go home that night, and the next day, their family still haven't seen them um, since the night before. Now, this isn't too concerning for Maisie's family because they just figured that Maisie had slept at a friend's house. Jay's family, however, knew it was uncharacteristic of him to not go home and to not tell anyone what his plans were. If he was going to sleep somewhere else, he surely would have called and told them that so that they wouldn't worry. He apparently was a very uh, accountable person. Eventually, both Maisie and Jay are reported missing uh, after they didn't resurface for a while. I'm sure Jay was reported much earlier than Maisie, though, um, although I could not find the dates that they were actually reported missing. In any case, it's not like their families knew uh, who they had been hanging out with the last night they were seen, so when they are reported missing, no one made the connection between the two missing persons report. Uh, persons reports, I'm sorry. The reports were also filed in two different agencies, which made making the connection a little bit harder. It took about six months. In January of 1980, they finally put it together and realized that Jay and Maisie had gone missing together on the same night. So when they realized this, they draw the conclusion that Maisie and Jay 
had run away together. They just thought that they had decided to run off and start a life together, even though the relationship was not all that serious. Um, what is kind of off about this theory is that uh, it's hard to believe they ran away together, considering that neither one of them had a vehicle. Jay didn't even have a driver's license. They also didn't take any clothes, jewelry, money, or any of the belongings that they had at home. So I don't think law enforcement looked too hard for them in the following years. There was some rumors that Jay may have been killed by a member of the Dunbar Police Department, uh, the agency that he was actually reported missing through. Uh, the rumor was that he was killed to prevent him from testifying regarding, regarding an incident of alleged police brutality that he had witnessed. Now, there was an incident of a person receiving a laceration while resisting arrest, but police in Dunbar said that the individual, that individual with the laceration, never filed a lawsuit against the department, and thus Jay wouldn't have needed to testify. Then, in May of 1984, almost five years after Maisie and Jay's disappearance, a coal mine security guard is walking around when he finds some severely weathered skeletal remains at the Fayette County surface mine. This location is about 20 yards from the uh, Fennelton Hollow from Fennelton Hollow Road and about 30 miles I'm sorry it's about 20 yards from the Fennelton Hollow Road and about 30 miles from Charleston where Maisie and Jay were last seen. Uh, the drive from Charleston to this location would have taken about 45 minutes. So, is it Jay or Maisie's body? Well, it was Jay. The clothes that Jay had been wearing the night he disappeared was found with his remains, and investigators figured that he had been killed on or near the night he disappeared. Jay's hands had been taped behind his back, and a single bullet was found under his remains, and it was concluded that he died from a gunshot. There were no signs or evidence of Maisie at that scene. They looked in the area for Maisie, but her remains were never located. So Maisie is still missing. Now, I know one of you out there is thinking it, but law enforcement does not believe that Maisie is responsible for Jay's murder. Full disclosure though, Maisie apparently uh, was associated with people who were in motorcycle gangs and involved in drugs, although Maisie herself uh, never had a criminal history of her own. Uh, police do have a person of interest in Jay's murder and Maisie's disappearance. His name is Mark Legg, and he is a former West Virginia resident and has been a suspect and a person of interest in several unrelated crimes in West Virginia and North Carolina between the years of 1983 and 2000. Those crimes include uh, sexual offenses against two teenage boys and the murder of two young men, but each time he was uh, each time he was he was either not charged or the charges ended up being dropped. Authorities have not been able to tie uh, Mark Leg to Jay and Maisie's case, though they don't have any evidence 
that would link the two, but they do suspect him as a person of interest at least. So let me tell you about Maisie May Sigmund Palmer in case you may be able to help. Uh, Maisie is a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown or hazel eyes. She was born on November 24th of 1954. She was 24 at the time of her disappearance and she would be 65 now. She stood at five foot six and weighed about 115 pounds. She was last seen wearing a pink or orange blouse, blue Lee brand jeans, sandals, dangly earrings, and possibly a gold ring set with a small diamond. She was carrying a small blue purse with silver trim and a shoulder strap. Maisie's ears are double pierced. She has a scar on her wrist and chin, a surgical scar on her breast, and a scar on the bottom of her right foot from when she stepped on a nail. She has O positive uh, blood. She wears a size 8 in pants, a size 10 in a dress, a size 34D in a bra, and her shoe size was 6.5 or 7. Now, she does have some aliases, um, and they are May Boomer, Shirley Kaufman, Lil Darko, Lily Goldberg, Beverly Harpold, May Josephson, Lily Cannibal, Roberta Mahoney, and are Cindy Shamblin. Uh, she may also use the date of birth of June 3rd of 1960, which is actually her sister's date of birth. And she apparently also has her sister's birth certificate. Um, when she went missing, she was a smoker and she smoked menthol cigarettes. Uh, Maisie's case numbers are 3951DFWV in the Doe Network and MP54794 in NamUs. And like the rest of the cases this week, she is also on the Charlie Project. So, if you were hanging out in Charleston, West Virginia on the evening of July 14th, 1979, and you remember seeing someone matching Maisie's description in a pink or orange blouse, or if you just know anything about Jay and Maisie's case, you can contact the Kanawha County Sheriff's Office. Okay, so let's just jump straight into the next situation here. Um, let's talk about October of 2011. It's autumn in Wyoming County, West Virginia. Imagine this. A man is walking through the, through the woods high on a hill. From the hill, you can look at a multifamily cemetery down below. The man is carrying something. It's pretty big. Uh, it's a tree stand, and he is a hunter. He's looking for just the right spot among all of the trees to set up a stand for later hunting. He looks down. Well, that doesn't look right. He looks a little closer. It can't be. But it is. It's a human skull. Now the hunter contacts law enforcement and they soon discover more body parts scattered among the forest floor. But who could this be? Well, that's a pretty good question because from late July to mid-August of 2011, four people had gone missing in and around Wyoming County, West Virginia. It's not until February of 2012 that the identity of the skeletal remains were positively identified. The family of 37-year-old Rachel Michelle Toller 
was told that the remains found in the woods were that of their loved one. Rachel was last seen alive on August 9th of 2011. Witnesses said they saw they last saw her as she got into a gray or blue Silverado truck near Ocean uh, Ocean I'm sorry. Oce, uh, I want to say Oceana. And I think that's probably what it is. Oceana, West Virginia. Uh, she got into the vehicle with a man only ever, ever, he was only ever referred to, I still don't believe they know his real name. They called him Kevin from Greenbrier County. So as police are really starting to dig into Rachel's presumed homicide, they are thrown back by something else. On May 11th of 2012, someone is walking in the vicinity of an abandoned house near Oceana. The person peeks into the yard and sees something. Something that makes them contact law enforcement. So when police arrive, it wasn't a very pretty sight. What they saw was a homemade swimming pool filled with about nine feet of stagnant water. At the bottom of that water was a decomposing body weighed down with two center blocks and bound with rope. Police searched the scene and the surrounding area for clues, and once they were able to safely remove the body from the water, they located identification on the body that belonged to Chester Stewart. So who is Chester Stewart? Chester was a 49-year-old Caucasian male when he was last seen on August 6th of 2011. At the time, he was living with his mother at, at her residence in Matheny, about a quarter of a mile away from the abandoned home he was found at. He hadn't been reported missing until about two weeks after he was last seen because his mother said it wasn't abnormal for Chester to disappear for days at a time. I could not actually find the cause of death in either Rachel or Chester's um, deaths, but the manner of death was ruled a homicide. Now, both Chester and Rachel's bodies were eventually sent to the Smithsonian Institution in D.C. for further examination, but I was unable to locate any further information about what they were able to determine. Now, I know I told you that there were four people that went missing in Wyoming County during a short time frame. And I just told you about the, t the recovery of two of them. So I'm sure you're curious, curious about the other two. Well, that's why I'm here. Uh, the very first of the four to disappear was Brian David Cook. He was last seen on July 28th of 2011. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and hazel eyes. He was 37 uh, years old and stood at five foot nine and weighed about 185 pounds. Brian has surgical scars on the insides of his forearms and he was last seen wearing a t-shirt, tan shorts, and black sandals. Now, Brian was last seen in Lion Co, West Virginia on July 28th um, as an African-American male dropped him off at the post office. This man had apparently driven Brian to Boone County before dropping him off at the post office. So at the time of his disappearance, Brian was apparently carrying about $16,000 in cash. 
the money was a um, was an inheritance from his father. Um, Brian is a former Marine. Um, he's a certified welder, and he is a father who left behind a young daughter when he went missing. Uh, he is case number MP three zero five zero seven in Namus. So after Brian went missing, Chester went missing. Uh, Chester was last seen on August 6th, as I mentioned. Then on August 9th, Rachel was last seen. The fourth and final person was last seen on August 9th too, but they actually spoke to someone on the phone on August 11th. Let's talk about who that is. Her name is Sherry Marie Myers. She is case number MP30606 in NamUs. Uh, she is a Caucasian female with black hair, uh, but blue eyes. And she was 34 at the time of her disappearance and stood between five foot five and five foot seven. She weighed between 141 and 170 pounds. Sherry uh, has a tattoo of a butterfly on one of her arms, but it doesn't specify which arm or which part of the arm. So Sherry was actually last seen in Oceana on August 9th of 2011. Someone in a pickup truck outside Oceana parking lot blew the horn and I guess Sherry recognized them or knew whoever it was. And so she walked over to the truck and began talking to the driver. After speaking to the driver for a minute, uh, Sherry actually got into the vehicle and they left. Now, on August 11th, Sherry spoke to someone on the phone, but any details of that phone call or who she spoke to are not public knowledge. It was almost two weeks later, on August 23rd, when Sherry was officially reported missing. So, what do all of these people have in common? Well, they live in the same area of West Virginia, and also Rachel, Chester, Brian, and Sherry were actually acquaintances. Police believe that there is a connection between the four cases, and their theory revolves around the drug world. Apparently, all four of them use narcotics pretty regularly. This is why when a few of these individuals weren't heard from for a for a few days, it was, you know, pretty normal. Um, it usually meant that they were off on a run of drug use. Uh, we also know that Rachel and Chester were found in pretty close proximity to one another, which leads me to wonder if Brian and Sherry are somewhere in the same area. I'm also curious about the cause of death in Rachel and Chester's case um, and if they were the same or similar. So if you know anything about the 2011 disappearance of Brian David Cook or Sherry Marie Myers or the death of Rachel Michelle Toller or Chester Stort, you can contact the Wyoming County West Virginia Sheriff's Office and provide them with your information so hopefully this case can be resolved. Okay, now I saved what I think is the most bizarre and interesting case for last. I don't know if most of you have heard of this case, but if you haven't, I guarantee you'll wish you would have. Let's talk about the 1945 disappearance of the Sodder children. Now, because this case is so old, 
It is difficult to find on most missing databases. Um, they are on the Doe Network and the Charlie Project, but they are not on NamUs. And although they were juveniles when they disappeared, they do not have an NCMEC case. Uh, to tell you about this in the easiest way, most of this is going to come straight from the Wikipedia page about this case. So, Giorgio Sodu was born in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States 13 years later with an older brother whom went back, who went back home as soon as both he and Giorgio had cleared customs at Ellis Island. For the rest of his life, George Sauter, as he came to be known, would not talk about, would not talk much about why he had left his homeland. So George, or Giorgio, um, eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to uh, the workers. After a few years, after a few years, he took more permanent work in Smithers, West Virginia, as a driver. And after a few more years, he started his own trucking company, at first hauling fill dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. Uh, uh, Jenny Capriani, uh, I'm sorry, let me try that again. Jenny Capriani, a storekeeper's daughter there, um, who had also come to the U.S. from Italy in her childhood, became George's wife. Now, the couple settled outside nearby Fayetteville, which had a large population of Italian immigrants in a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. In 1923, they had the first of their 10 children. George's business prospered and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. However, he had a strong opinion about many subjects and was not shy about expressing them, sometimes alienating people. In particular, his uh, strident opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. So the last of the ten Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was uh, deposed and executed. However, George's uh, criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. In October of 1945, a visiting insurance salesman, after being rebuffed, warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. He attributed this all to the dirty remark you have been making about Mussolini. Another visitor to the house allegedly seeking work took the occasion to go around the back and warn George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. George was puzzled by this observation though um, since he had just had the house rewired when a, an, electrical, an electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said afterwards that it was safe. 
In the weeks before Christmas that year, 1945, his older son had also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. Its occupants watched the younger Sodder children as they got home from school. So the Sodder celebrated on Christmas Eve of 1945, um, so December 24th. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, who was eight, and Betty, who was five, with new toys um, that she had uh, bought for them um, at the store that she worked at as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mom if they could stay up past their usual bedtime. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, uh, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother, Louis, remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. Her husband and the two oldest boys, John, who was 23, and George Jr., who was 16, had spent the day working together and they were already asleep from a hard day's work. So after reminding the children of those remaining chores, uh, she took two-year-old Sylvia upstairs with her and they went to bed together. So the telephone rang at about 12.30 a.m. and Jenny woke up and went downstairs to answer it. It was a woman whose voice she did not recognize. The woman asked for a name Jenny was not familiar with. There was the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. She told the caller that she had reached a wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. Uh, she, Jenny noted the woman had a, a strange laugh. So she hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, two things that the children normally attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion, um, the oldest daughter, had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed that the other children who had stayed up later had gone back up to the attic where they slept. Uh, so Jenny closed the curtains and turned, off, turned out the lights, and then she went back to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened by a sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she just went back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke up again, smelling smoke. When she got up again, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and the fuse box. Jenny woke up George Sr., and he, in turn, woke up the older sons. Both parents and four of their, ch four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs, but heard no noise or no response. They could not go up, uh, up there as they, as this, because the stairway itself was already ablaze. So John Sodder said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings that uh, that were sleeping up there. 
he would later change his story to say that he only called up there and he didn't actually see any of them. Um, that could that that very well could have been just an innocent mistake because sometimes when your head is um, confused or you go through something traumatic like that, you don't immediately recall exactly what happened. So efforts to find and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. You see, the phone did not work, so Marion had to run to a neighbor's to call the fire department. A driver on, an, on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. The calls were unsuccessful either because they could not reach the operator or because the phone uh, turned out to be broken. Either the neighbor or the passing motorist was successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of the town. So eventually somebody does get a hold of someone. A barefoot George, uh, the dad, climbed the wall and broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot resting against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby. A water barrel that uh, could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of his trucks he used in his business up to the house and used them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. Frustrated, uh, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed that the other five children had perished in the house fire. The fire department, who that was low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. Now, I don't know why he couldn't drive, though. Um, I don't know if maybe he just didn't know how to operate that vehicle or whatever. So the firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do little but look through the ashes that were left in the Sodder's basement. By 10 a.m., Fire Chief Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones as um, they might have expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, though, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was cursory at best. Nevertheless, Chief Morris believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting it had <clears throat> been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Um, the chief told George Sr. to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, he and his wife could no longer bear the site. So, George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of covering it 
uh, of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. The following day, a local coroner coroner convened an inquest which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was the man who had threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. So death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. Uh, The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all of the bodies had been found, but then later in the same story saying that only part of one body was recovered. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral that occurred on January 2nd of 1946, but the surviving Sodder children did attend. So not long afterward, as they began to re- rebuild their lives, the Sodder started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out. Then they found that the ladder that they had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire as they had initially thought, but it had been cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach two foot away from it to do so. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire itself. However, no record identifying uh, this man exists and why he would have even wanted to cut any utility lines to the cider house while stealing the block and tackle has never been explained. Uh, Jenny... Sauter said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with the other four children, would never have been able to make it out of the house. So Jenny also had trouble accepting Fire Chief Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire, and I'm inclined to agree with her. Many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash along with fragments of the tin roof. The contrast, uh, <clears throat> she contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she had read around the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all of the victims were reported to have been found in that case. She, uh, Jenny also burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would completely uh, be consumed. None ever were. An employee of a local crematorium she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, 1,090 degrees Celsius for my foreign listeners. Um, at that rate for two hours, um, it still wouldn't completely erase the bones. Um, it 
and that temperature was far hotter and far longer than the solder house had been burning. So the Sodder's trucks that failed to start were also considered. Um, George Sodder believed that they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of his son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come, home, come to believe that uh, Sodder and his sons might have in their haste to start the trucks flooded the engines and that's why they wouldn't start. Some accounts have suggested the wrong, num uh, wrong number phone call to the Sodder's house might have also somehow been connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. However, investigators later located the woman who had made the call. Uh, she confirmed it had actually been a wrong number on her part, so they have no connection there. As spring approached, the Sodders planted flowers in the soil that was put where the house was. Jenny tended to that garden carefully for the rest of her life. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children were they were memorializing might in fact be alive somewhere. So there was evidence that supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical system and was instead set deliber deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that, said that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green, rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. George, recalling his wife's account of loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. The family later claimed that, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no, no way to prove it. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the children themselves. Uh, one woman who had watched the fire from the road said that she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at, at, a, rest stop near, uh, um, at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said that she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot as well. So the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from the nearby town of Gully Bridge to look into the case. He learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a fire a year before uh, over George's remark about Mussolini had been on the coroner's jury, jury that ruled that the fire was an accident and told this to the Sodders. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Chief Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Now, Chief Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George Sodder. Sodder and private investigator Tinsley went to Chief Morris and confronted him with this news. 
He agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box and they dug it up. They took what they found inside, inside the box to a local funeral director who, after examining it, told them it was in reality a beef liver, very fresh, that had never been exposed to fire. Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville. The Chief Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally. He had supposedly placed uh, it there in the hopes that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. George Sodder did not wait for reported uh, reports of sightings to come in. Sometimes he would make them himself. Let me explain. Um, after seeing a girl in a magazine picture uh, of young ballet dancers in New York City who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty, he drove all the way to this girl's school where his repeated demands to see the girl for himself was were refused. He also tried to uh, interest the FBI in investigating what he considered a kidnapping. Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters. Although I would like to be of service, he wrote, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the uh, investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. If the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance, he added, he would of course direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department declined to do so. In August 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington DC pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. They were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute. Okay, it's about to get real scientifical, uh, scientifical, scientific. Um, they were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. Since the trans transverse recesses are fused, the age of the individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years, Newman's report said. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. Thus. Given this age range, it was not very likely that the bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time, although the reports allowed that vertebrae of a boy his age sometimes were advanced enough to appear to be at the lower end of the range. So Newman added that the bones showed no signs of exposure to flame. Further, he agreed that it was very strange that those bones were the only ones found since a wood fire of such short duration should have left skull, um, sorry, full skeletons of all of the children behind. The report concluded that the vertebrae had instead most likely come from the dirt that Sodder had brought to the location. Later, private, investigation, private investigator Tinsley 
supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby, nearby Mount Hope, but uh, could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. The Smithsonian re returned uh, the vertebrae to the Sodders in September of 1949, according to its records, but the current location of those bones is unknown. The investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, however, Governor Oki Patterson I'm sorry, Pateson, and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI declined, uh, I'm sorry, the FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. So with the end of uh, the official efforts to resolve the case, the Sodders did not give up hope. They had flyers printed up with the pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward that was soon doubled for any information that would have settled the case for even one of the children. In, in 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house and another along US Route 60 near Anstead with the same information. Eventually, the billboard... Uh, Eventually, over time, the billboard became a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19, which is State Route uh, 16 today. Their efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. A woman who had ran a Charleston hotel, Ida Crutchfield, claimed that she, claimed that she had seen the children approximately a week afterwards. I do not remember the exact date, she said in the statement. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to her to be of Italian extraction. When she turned around and began talking, I'm sorry, when she attempted to speak to the children, she said one of the men looked at her in a hostile, hostile manner. He then turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian, and then immediately the whole party stopped talking to her altogether. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Uh, investigators today do not, however, consider her story credible as she had only first seen pictures of the children two years after the fire, um, which was five years before she came forward. Um, George Sodder followed up leads in person himself, traveling to the areas from where tips had come. A woman in St. Louis claimed Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a house fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before, and none of those uh, tips or clues proved significant. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative actually had to prove to George that the children were his own before George would be satisfied. 
1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis Sauter had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. But George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said uh, years later that doubts about the denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Another letter that they received that year brought the, the Sodders what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her postmarked in Central City, Kentucky with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with features strongly resembling Louis's, uh, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived at this point. Written on the back of that photo was Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, uh, LLIL boys, I don't know if that's supposed to mean little, little boys, and then it has A90132, or, it's, or it could be A90135. So they hired another private detective to go to Central City and look into the picture, but he never reported back to the Sodders, and they were unable to locate him afterwards. The picture, nonetheless, gave them hope. They added it to the billboard, leaving the Central City part out of it and any other published information out of fear that Lewis might come to harm and put an, uh, and they also took the picture and enlarged it and put it over their fireplace. So George Sauter admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail late the next year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall and he couldn't go any further. He nevertheless vowed to continue. Time is running out for us, he admitted in another interview around the same time. But we only want to know if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. So George died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, uh, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives, um, they continued to seek answers to the questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the site of her former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. Their surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with the other Fayetteville residents, uh, the older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George Sauter, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said that they would be safer um, 
if they had left the house. They were possibly taken back to Italy, or at least that's what the, the theory is. If the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes that they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from any kind of harm. So as of 2015, Sylvia Sauter Paxson, the youngest in the family, is the only one still alive of the surviving children who were in the house on the night of the fire, which she says is her earliest memory. I was the last one of the kids to leave home, she recalled in the to the Gazette Mail in 2013. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. I expressed their grief for a Oh, I'm sorry. I experienced their grief for a long time. She still believes that her siblings uh, survived that night and quietly assisted with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Her daughter said in 2006, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die and that she would do everything she could. In the 21st century, those efforts have come to include online forums like web sleuths, in addition to, you know, media coverage. The increase in the latter had led some who have examined the case to believe that the children did, in fact, die in the fire in 1945. George Bragg, a local author who wrote about the case in his 2012 book, believes that John Sauter was telling the truth in his original account when he said he tried to physically awaken the siblings before fleeing the house. He allowed that conclusion, um, he allows that that conclusion may still be correct. And he says, logic tells you they probably did burn up in the house, but you can't always go by logic. So, and then there's a woman named Stacy Horn, who did a segment on the case for National Public Radio around the 60th anniversary in 2005. Uh, she also believes that the children's death died, the, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> she also believes the children's um, death in the fire is the most plausible solution. Um, in a contemporary post on her blog with the material she had to cut from her story for time, she noted that the fire had continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly. Even if it, it had been, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. However, she said, there is enough genuine weirdness about this whole thing that if someone it, I'm sorry, that if someday it is learned that the children did not die in the fire, I would not be be shocked. Okay, um, so there are five missing Sauter children. Um, Maurice Antonio Sauter is case number 224-DMWV in the Doe Network. He was 14, born on July 8th of 1931, and he would be 89 now. Uh, he has black hair and brown eyes. Uh, he has a scar on the back of his head hidden under his hair. He also has a scar near the top of his head near his forehead and a scar on the left side of his chin. 12-year-old Martha Lee is case number 2106DFWV. Uh, she was born on January 22nd of 1933 and would be 87 now. 
She has black hair and brown eyes. Uh, she has very a very small scar on her forehead near the hairline and a scar on her right shin. Nine-year-old Louis Arico is case number 2242DMWV. Uh, he was born on December 30th of 1935 and he would be 84 now. He too has black hair and brown eyes. Louis uh, is left-handed and has a small mole on the corner of his mouth. Jenny Irene was eight and she is case number 2107DFWV. She was born on September 19th of 1937 and would be 82 now. She too has the solder black hair and brown eye combo. Jenny has a dimple in her right cheek but not in her left. And the youngest was five-year-old Betty Dolly. She is case number 2108DFWV. She was born on March 4th of 1940 and would be 80 now. Once again, black hair and brown eyes. Uh, Betty has a scar under her right ear and has a mole above her right elbow. Now, if you would happen to know anything about this 74-year-old case, please contact the Fayetteville Police Department and help the Sodders put this case to bed once and for all. So um, that is the last of the actual cases, but I do have a scene again for you this week. It is pretty recent, uh, actually June of this year. It's not a long disappearance, although the person probably thought it was a long one. Um, it's really just a good story of remaining hopeful and never giving up. Um, I got this information from WSAZ Channel 3 News in West Virginia, and I'm pretty much going to tell you this story right from um, their site and the articles they posted about it. So originally, on uh, the original post was on June 24th at uh, 9.37 a.m. And they said that West Virginia State Police are searching for a missing man. Um, and that was on a Wednesday. According to Metro 911 dispatcher Benjamin Browning, 58, was last seen in the Elkview area. Uh, investigators say Browning has health problems. And he was last seen driving a white Ford F-150 with Missouri tags. Officials say his truck has lettering on the side for Marmic Fire and Safety. Then a little over an hour later on the same day, uh, they updated saying that troopers have been using helicopters to help with the search. And that they're also using cell phone pings to help locate uh, Browning. They say he did contact his employer to say that his truck got stuck on a property. And they also once again mentioned that he has health problems, but they do not believe that he is in any kind of danger. They mentioned at this point that um, according to the Oceana Fire Department, Browning called his daughter on Tuesday night around 11 asking for help and in need of, a, of medical attention but he didn't know exactly where he was. Um, his medical condition apparently is he has diabetes and he has gone two nights thus far without uh, medicine or food. Um, the Oceana Fire Department says Browning told his family that he would 
be that he was around Blue Creek Mountain and could hear fans like they were coming from a coal mining site. Um, the, the family apparently searched the Robinson Point near Clinton but was not able to find him. Um, so then we have an, they have an update later that afternoon that says that he has been found. Um, so according to the West Virginia State Police, Benjamin Browning of Mingo County was found near his truck in a creek off of Quick Road near Blue Creek Mine, which is near Sanderson. Uh, Browning spoke with a reporter at the scene. Um, Browning says he was in the area to deliver something for work when his map directions took him the wrong way and he ended up getting his truck stuck in the creek. Um, uh, according um, to the state police, they found him while out on the helicopter. They picked him up and took him to a, a state hangar where he was checked out by medics. And then he was driven by troopers to be reunited with his family. Um, Browning, of course, refused to go to the hospital. And this updates in particular said that he was headed home. But then they have another update uh, later in the evening in which they actually speak to Browning. Um, uh, I'm sorry. It says basically that he was headed out from his home in Mingo County to make a delivery Monday, but he, of course, never made it there. He said, quote, I followed Siri, got lost, and dropped over a mountain that I could not get back up. And once you get down, you can't get back up. You got to just keep going. Then I got stuck. Uh, stranded in the woods near the quick area for more than two days, Browning said he could not help but feel helpless. Um, so he had actually left on the Monday, June 22nd to make those deliveries and he had apparently been stuck um, until that Wednesday when they found him in the afternoon. So he once again says, I did nothing just hollering and seeing if anyone could hear me. Uh, James Browning said he, when he found out his brother Benjamin Browning was missing, he drove straight from Tennessee to West Virginia. Um, he and Benjamin, he said that Benjamin was a diabetic and he was worried what might happen if the sugar levels in his body would get too low. Uh, he was also concerned about the treacherous Appalachian woods uh, and how, you know, treacherous they could be. Um, he said, quote, it's sort of helpless feeling one point I could actually broke down and cried. Uh, state police searched for Benjamin by a few a few cell phone pings and messages he was able to get out through spotty service. Wednesday afternoon, they were able to track him down while searching from a helicopter. When they found him, he was unhurt but hungry and dehydrated. He said, Benjamin said, I, that he found some mud holes to drink a little bit of water out of. Um, so that's the only kind of hydration he had for those two days. Um, Benjamin said he is just thankful the encounter is over and grateful to be reunited with his family. Quote, I put everything out there looking f I'm sorry, let me try that again. 
quote, I put everybody out there looking for me because of something I should not have done to begin with. That's what Benjamin said. But James said he will always come if someone in his family needs help. He said, quote, I hugged him absolutely. Stick together, love each other no matter what. Praise God for every moment that we have, especially moments like this. So, it's a good story. This poor man was lost in a creek for two days being a diabetic. He literally drank mud water, was feeling like there was no hope, and he still didn't give up hope, and he was found. So, it's a good two-day disappearance, and he was found alive and well, despite being mildly hydrated. Um, and he didn't go into, you know, diabetic coma either. So, that's good. Um, so, there is your scene again for this week. Well, that is it. That is all that I have for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed um, my telling of these stories. Uh, these true stories, unfortunately. I wish that they weren't true sometimes um, because sometimes these disappearances don't, or most, all the time, let me rephrase that, all the time these disappearances don't need to happen. Um, if you do like this episode or you like this whole podcast in general, I love you. I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, let other people love it too. Tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. No, word of mouth. Call a friend. Text them up. You know, do whatever you have to do to let other people know um, about this podcast. Um, I know that I tell people that I like about the podcast that I like. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully that's what you do too. Um, and I've been talking for a while, so now my throat's all... <laughs> all kind of messed up. I'm sorry, you guys. Um, if you haven't already done so, please go like, follow, favorite, rate, and or review this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. If any of those are an option, Stitcher and Apple Podcast listeners, listen, do me a favor. Please, please, please. I know it's a pain in the butt, but log in and give me those five stars. I know that it requires you to leave a review, but um, that matters less than those stars. The stars are what drives this podcast up the rankings, and the higher it is on the rankings, the more listeners I get, and the more these stories get to the ears that they need to get to. So <clears throat> I will love you forever if you give me the five stars on on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Um, so, also, I mention this every week, but sometimes I have new listeners. If you're not already doing so, you can go um, like and follow the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash NTBSA podcast. Um, on the Facebook page, you I post when the new episodes are up. And I also post the pictures of the people that I talk about in each episode. So instead of just wondering what these people really look like, even though I give you a description, you can actually see a picture of them most of the time. Um, so go do that. Also from the Facebook page, you can send me a message with case suggestions. I love case suggestions. Um, 
even if it's something that you've heard in passing, you're not directly connected to the case, let me know. I'll do some research on it. If I have enough information to cover it, I will for you. I do this as to entertain you, but to also get these people's story out. So if it's a story that you are particularly interested in, let me know and I'll work it into a show. Um, if you do not have Facebook, um, you can email me at never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com. I know that it's a long email address and it's going to take forever to type in, but uh, please do it because I want to hear from you. I want to know what you want to hear about. Um, thank you so much for every week continuing to listen, for continuing to support this podcast. I've said it from the beginning. I'll continue to say it now. I do this and I'll continue to do this even if I only have one listener. Um, one listener, one person can make all the difference in the world. Um, so I just wholeheartedly thank you for everything that you do as a listener. Um, even if it's you're not leaving ratings or reviews or whatever, you're not liking the Facebook page, you're not sending me messages, it doesn't matter to me. As long as you're listening, that is so important to me. Um, and I, I hope that you continue to do that. And I hope that you continue to pull other people into my um, podcast or this podcast to listen to me. Listen, I was, I've been told recently that my podcast makes people go to sleep. Um, like my voice is very soothing, apparently. If that's the case, I'm okay with it. Because um, maybe in your subconscious, you'll absorb some of the information that I'm giving you. And I'm okay with that too. As long as it gets in your head somehow, I'm all right with it. So if you have a friend that needs a sleeping app, you know, here I am. Um, anyway. Thank you so much, you guys. Um, and please, please, please tune in next week where I'll tell you more about those never to be seen again.